Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. The Greater Cleveland Partnership has a new leader to replace the retiring Joe Roman. It's Beju Shaw, who is well known around these parts. We're not going to talk in detail about that today because it just broke. We'll be talking about it next week. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Chris Warnaski and Laura Johnston. Jane Cahoon is still off. She'll be back Monday. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Sunny out. You know, it's supposed to be fairly warm. I guess it's supposed to rain, but you know, spring is coming. Things are looking up. Vaccine is starting to show up. We got lots to look forward to. Summer is ahead. Let's begin. What's the great news for the many, many, many people seeking to get coronavirus vaccines in Ohio? Laura Johnston, I've been seeing this for a few weeks now that the logjam is is about to burst and it's going to get easier. What did we hear yesterday? Yeah, we got some really good news. Um, it wasn't quite as big of a jump as we originally thought. We had to correct our story later because of new information coming from the state. But uh, the number of Pfizer and Moderna vaccines allotted to Ohio is expected to jump. We've been getting about 220,000 doses a week. Next week, we'll get 310,000. And that's just one week. We don't know how much is going to grow after that. Plus, the one-dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine is going to increase the availability of shots in Ohio. The FDA is meeting today to discuss the vaccine's risk and efficacy. So if it's approved, Ohio is going to receive about 90,000 shots of Johnson & Johnson the first week it's allowed. We've got new locations coming on. Meyer and Walmart are going to begin offering vaccines in some of their stores. And teachers are finishing up their first round of shots. So that means more people, more shots are going to be available for these Ohioans 65 and up who have had such a frustrating time looking for vaccines. Yeah, I mean, it, what, what it does look like is that very likely by the end of May, middle of May, before summer gets fully roaring, that most people who want the shot will be able to get it, partly because there's a lot of Ohioans that don't want the shot, uh, which will free up more. So it, 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 there, there's been a lot of pent-up frustration. There's all these people that feel like it's not there. The supply has been limited, but the supply and demand lines will cross at some point where it's more readily available so that people that don't have the special conditions or or old will be able to start getting it, visit with their relatives, travel a little bit, all all the while wearing masks. And Mike DeWine read what his health officials said were going to be the basic rules going forward. Very common sense stuff, but but you can imagine actually visiting with people. Yeah. And there was was a lot of good news that came out of yesterday's briefing. And I feel like, you know, we're talking about opening up again. We're talking about being able to see people and make plans. And yeah, you're right. It's getting warmer. It's going to be easier to get outside. I still want to know when the Canadian border is going to open after a year. You haven't been to Canada in a year, have you? No. And we have no idea if it'll open, you know, when, if their vaccine rollout is actually a little slower. So I bet it does though, because they want your money. They want you to come. I will be happy to give them my money if they let me in their country. 
it's interesting. I um, on my text message account, the free account where I send out notes about what we're working on. I asked this morning, knowing that summer will will be more liberated than we were last summer, and more so than we've been. How will people plan vacations? I, it seems like I, I don't think you'd see a lot of overseas travel, but maybe I'm wrong. Or or are people willing to do airplane travel? Will people flock to Disney World again? You you get the sense there's a pent up demand to Rome that we've been cooped up so long. I'll be interested to see what people say about what their plans are. We've been talking about it, trying to figure out what we're going to do. Chris Wernowski. I, I read a story last night that said something like 33% of Americans would give up sex for a year for the ability to travel. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, so I, I think I think pent up is one way to put it. Um, <laughs> but I think people I think people are eager to 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 go. I I'm feeling it. I, I talked to my family like. Look, I, I bought a house and it has been everything. I, it's taken all of the power that I have to keep my mom from flying up here in the middle of a pandemic because she's really proud of that. So it's it, it's it's people are ready to get out. And, and, and to I, see I each other, like, right? I mean, it's not just getting out and roaming. It's being able to see the people that you love that you haven't been able to see. Yeah, like I haven't seen, I mean, I, I live away from all of my family. So I haven't seen any of my family. It's been like 14 months since I've seen a single member of my family. And it sucks. Like, I mean, I can't, I don't want to sugarcoat it. It really, really sucks. But uh, isn't it nice to finally, though, be able to see the day where that'll change? Because yeah, yeah we were in the dark a long time, but it really does feel like that July 4th will be a big national Well, right, but I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm also in that age group and my parents my parents live in Florida, so they're having a hard time getting the vaccine. So it might be a while, but we're, we're a little more hopeful than we were yesterday. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. How might civil rights and social justice advocates, including the mother of Tamir Rice, have thwarted a return of Steve Dettelbach as the U.S. attorney in Cleveland? Chris Ranowski, this is a story that is interesting on so many different levels. But in the end, it seems like the social justice advocates might have a win. Right. So this is a fascinating story that John Coniglia managed to ferret out yesterday, and, and I encourage people to go read it because it's really good. But what happened was there's a process that that happens when we name U.S. attorneys, and and we just had the one in the Northern Ohio U.S. attorney left, the Southern U.S. attorney left when Biden came on, uh, which is common. And then in Southern Ohio, they opened up the process to, to people who might be interested in it, but it appeared that the Northern Ohio position was already a lock for Steve Dettelbach, who used to have this position. He was the U.S. attorney here under Obama and left after Trump took office. And this sort of upset a lot of civil rights-minded people up here. And it really kind of went against the principles that Biden has sort of talked about as how he was going to replace people. He was he has said, and his administration has said, we want to find people who are more civil rights-minded. We want more diverse candidates. We, you know, we want people who may have worked in public defender's offices. And so these groups sort of reminded Sherrod Brown, who is, you know, has an important role in, in selecting who these U.S. attorneys are, that we need need somebody who might not be 
Steve Dettelbach. And so it appears that he may have caved to this decision or this decision to to confront him with this and and is now going to open up the process for their northern Ohio position. So and, and one of the, the the biggest voices in this was Samaria Rice, the mother of Tamir Rice, who, if you don't remember, was a young boy who was shot and killed by a Cleveland police officer. And she said, you know, we need to be looking at people who, who think differently and who might approach this job in a different way. And it appears that Sherrod has agreed to this. And I think what's fascinating is that they weren't even going to really consider anybody else up here. And it took public pressure for them to really say, like, we're going to open this up and maybe think a little differently about how we fill this position. Well, you know, we talk all the time. There's a gigantic Democratic machine in this area. I mean, Cuyahoga County is pretty much always Democrats win. And let's face it, Steve Dettelbach became part of the Ohio Democratic machine. He ran for attorney general. He lost to Dave Yost, but he joined the Democratic machine. So it's not surprising that Sherrod Brown, who's part of that Democratic machine, looked to a fellow machine member and said, hey, sure, come on back. But I'm really impressed with the way these advocates went about reversing that. I mean, they had sent a note. They had made a case for this a couple of weeks ago, but then earlier this week, they were really chagrined to find that Dettelbach was already headed to the job and they started to get vocal. And, you know, I salute Sherrod for listening, re- reversing his decision. You know, and look, the other thing is, let's face it, Steve Dettelbach was the U.S. attorney when a police officer killed Tamir Rice, and he remained U.S. attorney for the next two years and didn't do anything about it. There are still a lot of people that killed cannot understand why no one was brought to justice for that. It was done in the county courts and we, you know, we've talked about that ad nauseum, but there's still a civil rights case that could have been made and he didn't make it. And so he can't really remove himself from that. He was the U.S. attorney for two years after that. And if he really felt strongly about it, he could have done something. And if you follow courts uh, the way that people like John Conigli and I do, and you do, they tend to pick people who come from these massive law firms. So it's Baker Hostetler. It's 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 the big firms where a lot of these U.S. attorneys get pulled from. And they want people who have worked in smaller firms or, you know, specifically in issues of civil rights, which, you know, the federal courts do have to address in a way that state courts don't have to. And they, they want people who are public defenders who have worked on the other side of this, you know. You tend to see a lot of prosecutors get pulled into the U.S. Attorney's Office because it is a federal prosecuting job. And so I think this sort of movement to not only diversify the, the U.S. Attorney's Office from a racial position, they, there needs to be diversity in where these attorneys come from. You know, but, you I know mean, it, there, there is one unfortunate aspect to this in that the hallmark of Dettelbach's time was civil rights. I mean, he started his term by meeting with just about every minority group out there so that he could represent them. He had a, a unit that was disbanded by the by his replacement that focused on this. I mean, I don't know that we've ever had a federal prosecutor in Ohio who spent more time trying to right those wrongs, but it, you know, he's just going to be the victim of this because that there is this movement to say, don't always go to the usual suspects. Don't always go to the big firms. But I think it would be unfair not to remark upon this was a guy that was bona fide civil rights U.S. attorney. Right. And and I mean, look, and there's nothing that says he may. I mean, he may end up getting the job. It, it, I mean, that's that is a possibility here. But I I think people get sort of cynical about seeing the same people in these positions over and over again. And 
when there needs to be big, dramatic change in how we approach these problems that we're kind of continuing to face year after year after year after year, seeing the same faces in those positions gives you gives the public the sort of feeling that, you know, no matter what you do, the same people are always going to end up in these positions and and nothing is ever going to move toward the direction of, of righteousness. So, I know, but if you had somebody that did a great job, you kind of like to see them in the position. And I think most people would say uh, Steve Dettelbach was a memorable. U.S. attorney. So I'll have to see how it plays out. It's it's just good to see it's going to be an open process and the fix is not in. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost's tactic for trying to ensure that the state follows the state constitution and draws new congressional districts that reduce gerrymandering? Lord Johnston, I, I'm not sure how much power he has to make this happen, but it sure is nice to see him try. Yeah, he, he's suing Joe Biden's administration um, over the census. I think you could make an argument that we all knew the census was going to be late, but maybe you can't officially sue over it until they say, hey, we're not going to make the deadline, which was supposed to be March. So um, so in a federal lawsuit, Yo says the census delay would irreparably harm the state. It's going to miss the state constitutional deadlines for redistricting, which is the process of drawing up the new congressional state and legislative districts so that they are more fair. It's a process that the state's residents voted for. The the Republicans have said in recent weeks they weren't all that worried about missing these deadlines because even though they're in the, the Ohio Constitution, they figured the judges would be pretty lenient because of the situation. But um, census data is normally delivered to states by March 31st. But this year, they're saying it could be as late as September 30th before the data is ready. And that is like the end of when the beginning of Ohio's deadlines start. Yeah, I mean, we are in trouble. I mean, the the voters of this state went and (laughs) tried to change the rules on gerrymandering. It's not foolproof, but it's much better. But we can't do it unless we get the actual numbers. And what I'm surprised at is the states that are supposed to gain a a member of Congress, we're going to lose one, um, have not gone nuts on this because they could get more influence. You know, Yost is a Republican. He's suing the Democratic administration. You know, Donald Trump kind of screwed up the census while he was there. And this is a result of that. Uh, so it's a lot easier for him to go sue the Democratic, you know. Right, exactly. He'll get political points on top of it. Yeah. yeah, I think we buried the lead here in saying that it's great that the GOP's four-year moratorium on criticizing presidents is finally at an end. Uh, <laughs> But but look, put it aside. It is inexcusable for the census not to get this out. We need this information. So whatever it takes, get it done. Don't say we're going to delay it for six months. You know, go to the administration, get the money, get the people. Uh, The states all need this. We need this to make our legislature more fair. We've got the worst legislature I've ever seen. They still haven't repealed HB6. And we need to redraw the lines so it represents Ohio. I'm glad to see it. I hope it works. I just don't know how much power we have to sue the federal government. What's interesting is I feel like the League of Women Voters, which speaks for a lot like common sense and voting rights, had said, you know, we want this information. The last stories we did when we talked about the delays, they like, we really need the information. Now they're saying, don't rush it. We want the information to be right. So I see both sides of this, right? Like you you do want the information, but you want it to be accurate because if it's messed up, then that's going to cause way bigger problems. So I feel like there needs to be a sit down where you're not just saying this is the date. Like, can we work something out? Can we get some numbers? And if it's going to change, you give us a heads up and let us start working on the process at least. Now, there's a really easy path forward here. They just need to go to the state of Ohio unemployment office and recruit people to <laughs> fix the system. <laughs> and everything will be fine. Well, just I, I, 
but I but I think but I think what is is so frustrating with this, and and maybe this is an unhealthy way to think about it, is that this was a slow moving train wreck. We knew this train was going to crash into the side of the hill, and I mean there should have been a unified fifty state attorneys general letter two years ago that said, hey, get it together. You know we know this is going to be a problem, and then you know I mean we all kind of sat on our hands and let Trump gut the sense well, and, do it. and yeah. argue over Wilbur Ross's citizenship questions, and they meddled with it in a way that kind of broke it. And but that's not what it was. It was the pandemic. I mean, you can't say two years ago. I mean, the pandemic stopped people from knocking on doors. I mean, the, 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 this thing was clearly blocked by the pandemic, which nobody could control. Now, could you argue that the attorneys general should have seen it coming last summer and sued to make sure that the Trump administration did what it could do? I don't know if they had evidence that it was it was screwed up yet. I mean, it is. I, I don't think it's fair to say you go back two years, you can fix this because I don't think that's where the problem is. The, the meddling started with the census almost immediately when they started to, they were going to change, they were going to force, you know, undocumented people to answer a bunch of questions. And that was going to drop counts in democratic strongholds, et cetera, et cetera. But we can debate that a different day. <laughs> All right. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Who is blocking anyone in Ohio from finding out whether a single person has been arrested yet in the massive unemployment fraud that has victimized uncountable residents and cost the state hundreds of millions of dollars? Chris Renesky, this is fraud on the biggest scale I've ever heard of, and we don't know if anyone has been arrested. So so to answer your question in the most in the simplest way possible as to who is blocking anyone from Ohio, pretty much everyone. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the federal government which uh you know oversees part of the unemployment process, they won't say anything. They they won't say whether they've investigated anyone specifically for fraud or for carrying out this massive fraud. The Ohio Department of Jobs and Family Services is being tight-lipped about it. And I think what else is sort of telling here and I guess what might be frustrating a lot of Ohioans is that it's really not even clear if you should be contacting the police about this or who people can really reach out to and say, hey, I have a problem here. It's still... I think leaving people with a lot of real justifiable fear that that nobody's in charge right now, that, that this thing is just continuing to be a problem. I mean, you look at the unemployment numbers yesterday and a still a very significant amount of claims are considered fraudulent. So it, it just it doesn't feel like anybody has a handle on any of this. Yeah, we can't even tell people whether they should file a police report. I mean, we're, we're yeah. all victims of this. Everybody who's gotten the PIN number knows that they are at least a tangential victim and they don't know what to do. You report it to the state, but I mean, that's a crime. Somebody has tried to take unemployment money from the state of Ohio. It's a, a serious crime and you don't even know what you're supposed to do. And when you ask what you're supposed to do, I mean, we even talked to the attorney general's office and they said, yeah, we have no idea. I mean, <laughs> what is that? Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, if you really wanted to damage people's faith in the government, this is this is doing an outsized job of doing that. That's for sure. Yeah. And, you know, now it's on the Biden administration. It's his labor department. What are you doing about this? People are tormented. So I, 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 it was a very interesting story that uh, Jeremy Pelzer put together, basically saying, you know, you can't find out anything. Yeah, anymore. I want to I go through the quote that the labor department spokesman gave us because it is really one for the books. It, it says they, quote, does not confirm, deny, or otherwise comment on the existence or non-existence of investigations. So, yeah, so that's where we're at. That's pretty yeah. much at like con- the birth of confirm nor deny stage. That's a responsive <laughs> government agency for sure. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
Josh Mandel, a declared Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate, showed reporters his sealed divorce file Thursday afternoon. Laura Johnston, this was this was interesting because he had he went to a distant county when he got divorced a couple years ago. He had it all sealed. Then he announces he's running for Senate, which means every news agency in the state is going to sue to unseal it and probably win. But he did something right. He actually got ahead of this thing and showed everybody what was in the file. What did we see? Yeah, there wasn't any just like, you know, jaw-dropping holy smokes kind of things that popped out on us. But Seth Richardson, our uh, political reporter, took a look at it and said that he went through the documents. They were redacted to protect personal information, the bank account numbers, specifics on the kids. But it showed that Mandel walked away with more than a million dollars in assets split during their divorce. Most of it is in investment accounts. Uh, He has a state pension. He has equity in a new home in Beechwood. There's shared custody of the three kids who will primarily live with his wife. He does make child support payments. He's providing their health insurance. And his wife released a really supportive statement. She said she's looking forward to doing whatever she can to help Josh get elected to the U.S. Senate. She says she remains close friends. And if you remember, Mandel dropped out of the race like in 2018. It was really a surprise and said it was because of health issues and needed to take care of his wife. Um, It was an undisclosed illness. And then, you know, two years later, they asked that judge in Richland County to keep their divorce secret. Oh, I don't think it was two years later. I think it was not Oh, okay. We found out about it two years later. Yeah, I think I think that happened earlier. I, look, I mean, the divorce file is embarrassing to him because he held himself out as the family values candidate over and over again, lording it over people. And so that this is a mark against that. Getting it out of the way now, two years before almost the election is interesting. But the most significant aspect of this when you're talking about news is he did something smart. And generally, I thought Josh Mandel, as a campaigner, never does anything smart. I mean, in his first run against Sherrod Brown, you know, almost every campaign thing he did was a lie. And we kept pointing it out and giving him pants on fire ratings with PolitiFact. So he must have some new advisors or something because this was a very wise thing to do. Reveal it show that there's really nothing remarkable in it. So it stops any speculation about what might have caused the divorce or the money. And then it goes away. And so when he's in the thick of this race later, this will not be nagging at him. But he hasn't generally been smart. And so this surprised me. Yeah, I mean, I think we thought that because it had been sealed and because it was in a faraway county, that there was going to be some really awful things in here. And there's not. I mean, there's a lot of money Um information. You know, last year, Mandel made almost $400,000 from serving on corporate boards, which is a whole lot more than he was making as treasurer of the state. But other than that specifics, it, yeah, it seems like it was fairly cut and dry. It was a smart thing to do. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the Cleveland school system breaking its word to Ohio Governor Mike DeWine about starting classes on Monday, a promise that resulted in DeWine providing the vaccine needed to protect Cleveland teachers? Chris Ranowski, we had a story about a week ago saying that Cleveland had figured out how to bring the kids back on Monday. Yesterday, that changed. Right. So Cleveland schools will delay in-person learning for one week. Instead of reopening on Monday, they are going to now reopen on March 8th uh, to ensure every family in the district 
Eric has a chance to prepare and plan for some sort of return to uh, in-person learning. Um, the district sent out mailers to contact the families about the transition to in-person learning after a fully remote school year thus far. A CEO, Eric Gordon, announced last Friday a phased-in approach to returning to buildings over three weeks, starting with students with the highest needs, including students with learning disabilities and potentially off-track seniors and off-track uh, career tech students. The plan is now pushed back to start March 8th instead of the coming Monday, which DeWine basically said all schools who receive vaccinations to staff should be fully open in person or in a hybrid format. And um, DeWine sort of defines hybrid as all students having the opportunity to learn in person each week. Um, the, you know, this is a challenge for Cleveland, which is one of the largest school districts in the state with about 37,000 students. And Gordon has expressed a need for caution about reopening quickly because the district size and because many students are a part of vulnerable populations. And the coronavirus has shown that has impacted some of those vulnerable populations uh, in a way that it hasn't affected others. So, But the district did send out a 36-page reopening guidebook to families, including in-person learning options, a schedule of how hybrid students will learn, and all the precautions that the schools are taking to prevent the virus. Um, and families can also choose to stay in remote learning, an option the Gordon previously said about half the students will take. I can't imagine that DeWine will pitch a fit about this. He he did not like when he heard that some of the school districts were coming back till April because he felt like that broke the deal. But I think he'll respect the good faith effort to get him back and probably respect the reasons that they took the extra week. And really, there's not anything he can do about it to teach yeah. are already vaccinated. So, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, what are you going to do? Cut their budget again? I mean, it's just not much he could do. Okay, it's this week in the CLE. What's the latest effort to rebuild the tree canopy that once defined Cleveland and Northeast Ohio? It used to be the tree city, Laura Johnston, but we're not anymore. There's a lot of trees we don't have. What's changing? Yeah, we used to be Forest City. So Holden Arboretum is hoping to persuade a bunch of private property owners to plant trees because government can only do so much to solve this tree cover crisis that's spreading across Ohio. And it really is a crisis. There was this 2020 urban tree canopy assessment that showed the county lost 6,600 acres of trees between 2011 and 2017. That's a two percentage reduction in tree cover from 37 to 35%. And the U.S. Forest Service says a healthy tree canopy in urban areas should be 40 to 60%. And then if you're looking at Cleveland specifically, they're at 18% and they could fall to 14% by 2040. So I think people like trees. Trees are good for the environment and we need to plant more of them. So 85% of property in this area is privately owned. So we've got to do something about that. Holden and Forests and Gardens, which is, you know, the Arboretum out in Kirtland, as well as the Cleveland Botanical Garden, is asking its members, that's where they're starting with, they want people to plant 15,000 trees across the region by 2025. Okay, well, what I what I care about is when the trees start to leaf out. That's what we really need to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so everybody will have... I mean, did you plant a lot of trees when you moved into your house, either one of you? Because that was one of the first things I did, was yeah. like, yeah, plant we trees. We did. A couple of them died, but we have one towering one that we planted. We brought it home in the car, and it's hard to believe now that it's as big as it is. It's what fantastic to see. Chris, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, I said, great. So we're going to have more trees, which means more people are going to buy gas-powered leaf blowers, which means we're going <laughs> to more exhaust. It, it all, it's, it's the circle. No, of, circle. I mean, you are way too young I, to be the I, man I, on the porch. I mean, I feel like I'm old. The when I did a story on the 50th anniversary of the Cuyahoga River fire, and I was asking like what we can do to improve the environment, 
environment since that was such a big stain and a big change in the environment. And the answer was plant more trees. Like there's so many good things that trees do. They stop erosion, the carbon dioxide, the shade, it, you know, it cools everything down. I mean, there are so many reasons to plant trees and it's such a simple thing that anybody can do. All right. All right. Yesterday you were the recycling. (laughs) You're listening to this week in the CLE. The latest forecast is it's supposed to be 57 on Sunday. It's supposed to rain like hell, but 57 degrees. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. We'll be back Monday, hopefully with a full house to have discussions about the news. 